John chapter 5, starting at the first verse. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who took you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, these words we just read remind us of the incredible, life-giving compassion of Jesus and the amazing way his voice reaches into our lives when we least expect it. He is the life-giver, and nothing can stand in his way. They remind us, too, that our reaction to these words, to his voice, decides everything for us. It's our reaction to the life-giver that decides whether we will, in the end, have the life that comes from him. Are we for him, or are we against him? And this Jesus simply cannot be ignored. We, we have to come to terms with him. And so we're going to look at the passage in two parts, verses 1 to 9 and 9 to 16. But in each of those two parts, we'll see two things. So firstly, we'll see the compassionate voice of Jesus in 1 to 9, and the life-giving voice of Jesus also in 1 to 9. And then we'll see the dividing voice of Jesus in 9 to 16, and again, the transforming voice of Jesus in 9 to 16. All the while, we must keep in mind with this passage that in the rest of the chapter, which we'll begin to look at next week, we see a lot of what is Jesus' own explanation of this miracle. So a lot of the things that we see here we'll touch on now, but Jesus himself will teach us in more depth uh, next week. Because he's going to answer those who criticize this miracle. But let's look first at the compassionate voice of Jesus in 1 to 9. For 38 years, this man has watched everyone walking by. He's watched people come and go and work and live. 
while he's been ill, children have grown to adults and got married and had their own children. And all the while, he has had nothing. Right now, in the story, he doesn't even have anyone, any friend, any relative, who can help him into the pool. We don't know how old he was, but he's been ill and weak for nearly four long decades. He can't get to the pool, so he's probably paralyzed or terribly weak at the very least. He's been unable to care for himself properly for a long time. And of course, there are no wheelchairs. There are no painkillers. There's no disability allowance. This is a man in an absolutely desperate state. He is so desperate, he's willing to try anything. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, actually, you'll you'll see what he's willing to try. It's not in the actual Bible text, but there is a little footnote um, that used to be probably just a marginal note, something people scribbled in the margin of the Bibles to explain what was going on. There was a story that every so often the water in this pool, the pool of Bethesda, would, would bubble up as an angel stirred it. And they thought there was a superstition that the first person into the pool will be healed of any sickness. And this desperate man joins a crowd of desperate people, sick and blind and disabled in different ways, all lying around the pool, desperate to be the first person into the water and have a chance, just some kind of hope of healing. You can imagine the scene, all the pain and suffering that you would have in a hospital that crammed, rammed into this scene around the pool without any doctors and without any painkillers. Here he is lying in the middle of it, unable even to drag himself to the edge of the water. And Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to get well? Now, at this point, it's really tempting to stop and do some amateur psychology. You know, we want to wonder, you know, I see one of those people, and if you've been sick for a long time, you'll know the feeling. was just kind of forgotten what it is to be well anymore, or maybe he couldn't really face the responsibility anymore of living the life of a fully well person. But that's not what the story concentrates on. What's more important is that his words in response show that he is not just sick and helpless. Um, sorry, that's slightly out of order. That's the, a model of the pool around which he was lying. He says, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. I have no one. When Jesus has come up to this man, he has focused laser-like on the man in the most desperate, awful situation. A man with no hope and nothing to live for. And Jesus sees him and he cares. There's no other reason to pick this man out. You know, it's not that this man has been unusually good and he's getting a reward for that. We're going to see Jesus is going to tell him off shortly. It's not that he's begging Jesus to help him. He doesn't even have a clue who Jesus is. So still less is it that he has great faith in Jesus. If he doesn't know who he is, he could hardly have faith in him. As far as he's concerned, a man just appears, tells him something, and then disappears into the crowd again. Jesus picks this man out of nothing but raw compassion. Nothing but an awareness of his need, an awareness of his own ability to fill that need. This compassion 
is what we discover when we come to know Jesus. Uh, not so long ago, someone was telling me how they'd become a Christian. And they were someone who had a hard life. You know, they'd been let down by many people. And they told me that being loved by Jesus Christ, truly loved, was the very first time they had ever experienced real love in their lives. Now, it's pretty heart-rending to hear someone say something like that. And you think back over their family and over everything like that. But the reality is that when they talked of God's love and what it meant to me, they reminded me that the kind of love they were feeling from Jesus Christ, that kind of sympathy and compassion, vast and unconditional, is a love so great and so deep that in comparison, none of us have ever known what it feels, feels like to know this kind of compassion and love, for which we have done nothing, for which we have deserved nothing, for which we've expected nothing, and which we have not even asked for. And yet Jesus speaks into our lives with this kind of compassion, with this kind of love that satisfies more deeply that all the best love of friends and father and mother and family, however good they are, never be. Secondly, we see that his voice does not just speak with compassion, but it is also a life-giving voice. We see that in 1 to 9. It is a life-giving voice. In fact, Jesus in verse 25 will make that clear, as we'll see next week. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. Jesus has the power to speak life to the dead. Now, this man in our story is not dead, of course, but, you know, he's next best thing, really. And yet Jesus says to him, get up. And he does. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever watched um, some of the charlatans that you can see on satellite TV promising healing to crowds. You know, the way they work up a whole crowd to a fever pitch of longing and excitement and hunger. And then they pick someone full of desperate need and longing out of that crowd. And then massive theatrics and drama and shouting, they lay on hands and do their healing. Jesus isn't like that. In fact, Jesus isn't even like the kind of amazing miracles you see in the Bible or the answers to prayer that we see for healing nowadays in the church. So most of those require some prayer, some time, some something. But for him, it's just a word. One moment this man's lying, hopeless and sick and alone, and after nothing more than a brief inquiry, someone he's never met says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And he does. You know, there's no psychology or fakery here. It's a real thing. His mere words bring life to this man. And as Jesus will make clear next week, that's because his is the voice of the king, the king of the universe who molded the very stars with his voice, who brings life to the dead, to the hopeless and the lonely and the alone, who brings life to sinners and to fools. And as again, Jesus will tell us next week, he'll, he'll say, very truly, a time is coming and has now come and the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So he can say to us, Very truly I tell you, verse 24, whoever hears my word 
and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Let's listen to him. That's what we are to hear today. Because he sees you with the same compassion. He sees your need just as clearly as he saw that hands. Even if you come with man's hands just as empty as this man's, his word is the same life-giving power. So we are to listen to him. The next section of the passage is slightly darker. The second half, uh, 9 to 16. We see the dividing voice of Jesus, because when people hear this voice, they have different reactions. Many do not want to listen to it. Uh, And again, as we will see in the rest of the chapter later, this is the judgment Jesus brings the first time he comes. Not that he points out people to be condemned, but rather that the reaction we have to him reveals our hearts. And so it reveals the judgment we will or will not face in the future. Verse 9 tells us that the day this man was healed was a Sabbath. The Saturday, in other words, when God had commanded his people to rest, to enjoy time with him and with their families. But the religious leaders and the customs of that time have overcomplicated that so terribly so that it meant not just resting, but doing, not doing anything that could be remotely thought of as work, like, for example, carrying a straw-stuffed mat that you've been lying on. And so when the Jewish leaders see this man, they are very angry, and they say, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And the man's response is interesting. He says, but the, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And they are very shocked. You know, this isn't just one man breaking the rules. It's actually someone teaching this stuff, corrupting people. Notice very carefully what they don't say. They're just being told, the man who made me well did this. They don't mention that. They just ignore it as if it never happened. They go on and they say, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? We found a problem and we're concentrating on that. We're not interested in anything else. They just press on with their prejudices, like so many of us do so often, so much of the time. They won't come to Jesus for life. They won't listen to his voice because they won't even stop and pause long enough to think about what he's doing and saying, to realize what he's offering. And you know, maybe if Jesus had been right in front of them, they would have struggled to accept it because after all, here's an uneducated, as far as they know, country bumpkin from Nazareth speaking in a funny accent. He's not a rabbi. So, of course, they're going to have a bit of difficulty believing in that. But here, in this miracle, and maybe this is a part of the reason for it, they have evidence that takes all of that away. It's like a a double-blind test in medicine. where You you test a drug, not just you don't tell the person who's who's taking the drug, but... Even the people who are looking at the results don't know what medicine they've taken. So none of their prejudice, none of their ideas can confuse the results of the test. You know, the man doesn't know who made him well. They don't know who the man is. And yet, even with that evidence shown to them that this man has been made well, they won't stop and listen. 
This is a real turning point in John's Gospel. Up to now, it's mostly been in chats with individuals and the way Jesus turns people's lives around. But verse 16 will say, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And that's going to go only downhill from here. Verse 18, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. It's going to become a confrontation between him and them. And all of this is a warning for us, you know. Will we come to the story honestly? Will we come to Jesus and the Gospels honestly, laying aside the ideas about Jesus we already have, wherever we got them from, and really weighing the evidence, really examining what he says about himself and what he does? Are we willing, in other words, to have open minds? But then fourthly, the transforming voice of Jesus. As we've said, there are two sides to the way people react to Jesus. We can reject his voice or we can listen. But listening does more than just teaching us something about him or helping us understand. It really does transform our lives. And I think we see that in the life of this man in this story. Now, at this point, I have to make a little bit of an admission. I have not been very charitable in the past to the man who is healed here. All my life, I've read this story thinking that this man is a little bit too thick to recognize who Jesus is. And as soon as he finds out, he shops him to the authorities. Not the best. And, you know, plenty modern commentaries agree with that. So maybe that's right. You'll have to see what you think once I've uh, explained what, what I, I think now. But basically, reading some of the old commentators has made me really look at this man again and examine and think about it and, and pray about it and, Come to a little bit of a different conclusion. First of all, Jesus finds this man in the temple. That's a good start, at least as incidentally. Is he giving thanks for what happened? It's a good place to find him. And then Jesus tells him in verse 14, See, you are well. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. This man does have a problem. And Jesus is showing that he cares about more than the man's body. What really matters is his whole self. What threatens that is not just sickness, it's sin. Now, we don't know what sin Jesus is talking about, but it's fairly clear from the way he speaks that the man would have known perfectly well what he meant. There's something that really sticks out in his life, something he knows is a, a bit of a scandal, something that he knows he should have dealt with long ago. And maybe Jesus just meant, you can't carry on with that life of sin and expect to be in heaven with me. You will face eternal punishment if you throw away the chance of new life I'm giving you here. There is something worse, something much worse than all those years of sickness that you have dealt with, worse than those 38 years of helplessness. Don't go that way. Turn your back on that sin that you knew you should have dealt with years ago and follow me. Or perhaps the warning is more immediate. You know, sickness is not usually caused by our sins. If you're sick, it's probably not because you're doing something wrong. But the New Testament does make it clear that on occasion, God does use sickness to discipline clear, serious sin. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, or 
Acts 5, verses 1 to 11. Make, make that clear. And maybe that is what's happening here. Jesus expects the man to know what he's talking about. And he's giving him a warning. That tells us that Jesus is willing to use the sicknesses and the circumstances of this man's life to draw him back to himself in light of life. That's a scary thought, but it's a good one, because Jesus is going to bring this man back to him whatever it takes. How does he respond? Now, let's put ourselves in his shoes for a moment. This is not a man who is used to high-powered meetings at work or intense debate. He's been powerless for four decades, and suddenly he's been grilled by the religious authorities. Now, just, just imagine you were hauled to, before a judge tomorrow, how you'd feel when you've been cross-examined. Or, since they were the political authorities as well, if you were called into Parliament and asked all sorts of awkward questions in front of the whole of Parliament and the TV cameras. You know, I've been cross-examined a few times by a lawyer before, an angry lawyer. Um, fortunately, never as the accused and always as a witness. But it's not fun. And the first time you do it, you can't think very fast on your feet. These people tell him, you need to tell us who told you to break the law? Who told you to pick up your mat? Notice one thing about the way he, he speaks. He never says, the man who told me to pick up my mat was this man. Every time he responds, he says, the man who made me well. That's what he's interested in. This is the man who made me well. He doesn't have a choice, probably, about telling them who Jesus is. They want to talk about breaking Sabbath rules. He wants to talk about the man who made him well, the one who's transformed his life. By, by responding in that way, ever so subtly, is he saying to them, you leaders, you're ignoring the real issue here. You're ignoring what this man has done for me. That's what matters. <laughs> perhaps he is just grumpy. Perhaps he's not the brightest. And perhaps he is just taking, dropping Jesus to the authorities. But just perhaps, here's a man who's just been ill for all these years, who's engaging in basic evangelism, a man without practice or skill or gifts or any knowledge at all, really. He wasn't even sure who Jesus was five minutes ago. And he's telling the religious authorities, this is what Jesus did for me. Jesus' warning to him not to sin has come into his life, I think, with the same power that his word telling him to get up and walk did. This is a man who has begun to change through listening to the voice of Jesus. Jesus' voice speaks into our life with the same transforming power. Now let's come to a close. Jesus knows what he's doing when he touches a life, however hopeless and helpless it is. And he does change it for the better. And we don't have to be anything special to follow Jesus, do we? This man really isn't. We don't have to bring anything to the table at all. This man brings absolutely nothing. We just need to listen to his voice. His voice that brings us life and calls us 
out of sin. And this passage, therefore, leaves us with that choice, doesn't it? Will we be like the authorities of that time, burying our heads in in the sand, stuck to the prejudices of our time, and unable to face the evidence of who this man is? Or will we be like this sick man who hear the voice of Jesus, even when it rebukes us, so that we can be given life, life that lasts by the Lord of life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you with weak faith. May we be strengthened in that faith, know you more and more each day. And may you give us one day to us who know you now by faith, that we might see your glory and hear your voice face to face. May your voice work in our lives. May we hear it and may it transform us. And one day, when we are dead and buried, let us hear that voice again, commanding us back to life with you forever. Amen.